Simple title to today's message, Eternal Security. In today's world, it seems like nothing is secure, whether that be jobs, marriages, health, the economy, stock market, even our safety and walking around or traveling around, and whether that be by car, by bike, by automobile, by walking, uh, by plane, whatever it might be, it seems even the stability of countries is not secure. In fact, when we talk about security, we talk about honoring the military, we talk about war, that's why there are wars. It's, people think in terms of greed, and that's true, and to take over and whatever, but walls are built and wars are fought to provide security for nations, for groups of people, and so forth. And it just seems like there's nothing that's secure. Homes are built and then weather comes and sometimes even the most secure building that we thought existed, whether it be through water or an earthquake or whatever it is, even that falters and the buildings falter and all kinds of things happen. So when we talk about eternal security, the first thing we should probably realize is it seems so unrealistic that anything could be eternally secure. And yet is it not true that if it is possible that there is any type of eternal security whatsoever, who would not want it? Only a fool, right? If you walked in the streets today, and I just did a survey with you and had you go out and ask people uh, if you could have something that was absolutely secure for all eternity, would you want it? I don't think too many. First of all, to be skeptical as to where you were going, probably, in far, as far as a practical situation. But I don't know of anyone that would not want some type of security like that. The subject of eternal security has tremendous ramifications and is of tremendous importance theologically as well as practically. For it addresses such questions as, first of all, whether it's even possible to have that type of security, whether there is life after death or a resurrection, eternal security all surrounds that, who is included in having eternal security, if anyone, and how do you obtain it? And then if you get eternal security, can you lose it? Now, that kind of sounds strange to you if it's eternal security. And yet, there are many a practical situation where believers, quote unquote, are afraid that they've lost their salvation. Can we really be sure? What about that professing Christian that falls into sin and so forth and so on? So the subject matter of eternal security is not only one of interest, it's one of very practical importance and theological importance as well. As we come to the text that are bef that's before us, there are a lot of things that are in this text that we could literally, and that's, this is no statement of exaggeration, we could literally spend a month in these verses dealing with every single detail uh, that is brought up in this passage both in verse 30 as well as in verses 25 and 26, and then in verses 28 and 28. There's so much subject material. But for the purposes of exposition, I think that really goes beyond what we want to do. 
in my opinion, this is one of the strongest and most authoritative passages in the entire scriptures on the subject of eternal security. Just an opinion, but it's a very strong passage. You need to remember the context that this is coming off of because I think it has a lot of relevance to what the Lord says here in this passage. This is coming off of the parable of the good shepherd. Always, always, always. That will help you students get drilled that in school. You need to have that drilled in your mind. What will keep you from doctrinal error? There is so much doctrinal debate in so many eras of the, of the Word of God, so many areas of the Word of God, and I am convinced, I was convinced without having the theological training and so forth before, when I come to know the Lord as my Savior, there was one book that I was interested in. That's the truth, and that is this book. This was the book that I was interested in, not what everybody else wrote about this book. And there are so many Christians that do more reading of other theologians than they do of this book. And I'm going to tell you something. That's an embarrassment to anyone that does that. Because this is the book that has the truth of the word of God. And this is the book that we need to learn from. And why say that? Because many times, even this tremendous passage that we could spend a lot of time on, as I just indicated to you, is never put back in its context. It's coming off of the parable of the Good Shepherd. Well, what significance does that have? Everything. Why? Because in teaching the parable of the Good, Samar of the good Shepherd, excuse me, that's who I meant to say, the Good Shepherd, he has just talked about the fact that that shepherd is the one that guards the sheep. And there are thieves that are trying to snatch away the sheep. And there are wolves that come in and want to devour the sheep. And there are robbers who want to take away from the sheep. And the sheep are vulnerable. And if it wasn't for the good shepherd that protects and keeps and cares for the sheep, there'd be no security for the sheep. And it's on the heels of that that he deals with this passage as well. The shepherd protects the sheep. The shepherd cares for the sheep. And he has been expounding that over and over and over again and showing that it is Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd. The occasion, as we well know from last week, of this passage is found in verse 22. It is the Feast of Dedication. It is the Feast of Lights. It is known as Hanukkah today, as I mentioned to you last week. It is also winter, according to verse 23, about November, December. And we say about, by the way, because the Jewish calendar is a little more flexible than ours, and sometimes it is in different months that things follow, or fall, I should say. But it's in winter for sure, because it says so in verse 23. I don't need to debate that. The Word of God says it. Also, we notice that Jesus was surrounded by people. They gathered around him in verse 24. They had surrounded him. They had come down on him because of his teachings, and they wanted to know even though he's given them all the evidence. So in verse 24, there was a challenge. The challenge from the Jews' point of view was, are you really the Messiah? Say it plainly. Which was kind of foolish because Jesus challenged them in verse 25, which is where we pick it up today and left off last week. 
And his challenge to them was, you have heard my words. Now we need to also understand historically where we are. Jesus is actually at the end of his ministry. It might not seem it because you're only in John chapter 10, but he's already been teaching them for three years. He's not that far from the crucifixion here in John chapter 10, although we have many, many more chapters to go through. So they have heard his words and they have seen his works, verse 25. I told you, and then he says, the works that I do, these testify of me. So as we noted last week, they did not need additional information. Too many people today think that people need all kinds of information, and if I just give them additional information and information, that's not true. People don't believe. There's two reasons, and they're going to come out now or in a moment, but there's two reasons. One is the hardness of man's heart, and the other is the Lord's got to open up the heart. Both have to work together. But the issue is that they did not believe. Verse 25, you do not believe. And folks, you cannot run away from that. It is clear in Scripture. The issue is belief or unbelief, plain and simple when it's coming to salvation, if you really want to break it down. But I want you to notice this at the beginning of the outline that I've given you. Not everybody has eternal life. Now, we take that for granted. But if there's some people that do not believe, and they cannot believe, as we'll see in a moment, there is no such thing as universal salvation. Not everybody, to start this morning off, not everybody has eternal security. They might think they do. They might want to think they do. But not everybody can have eternal security because there are those who do not believe. There is no such thing as universal salvation. Not everyone is going to meet in heaven. The concept of it doesn't matter what religion you're in or what you believe, that everybody's got some aspect of truth and we're eventually going to get there because if God's a loving God, he's going to let everybody into heaven, is false. It is not true. There is a real hell. There is a real heaven. There is death. There is judgment that is coming. Those things are real. And not everyone will find themselves in heaven. It is such a vital importance when talking about eternal security, we need to just look at a couple of verses. I'll go just to two books. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. To 90% of you, this is familiar territory, but still you need to understand it when we're talking about eternal security. In verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to what? Destruction. And there are how many? Few? Many. Many who enter through it. You got that? If you get nothing else on this aspect of it, when we talk about there is no universal salvation, there are many that are going to find themselves in destruction. Many that will go by the wide gate. Verse 14, the gate is small and the way is narrow. In fact, it's only through Christ that leads to life. And there be how many? Few. If you listen to statistics today, it almost sounds like everybody's saved. There are few that are saved. Not many. Few. 
that will find life. And for the sake of our argument here, go to John, I'm sorry, Matthew 25, just for a moment. Matthew 25. Many places we could go to deal with the concept of hell. But in Matthew 25, I'll only read four verses. Verses 31 to 33. This, by the way, is according to its own context after Christ returns to the earth. It's very clear from chapter 24. And in verse 25, verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now watch this. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd, very appropriate to our text, separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Now just look at verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, where? Into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not just the devils and his angels. Here we even see the nations. There is judgment coming. There is a real hell. There is no such thing as universal salvation. One more text and we'll go find it in John. Go with me to John chapter 5. We've already studied this. Why spend so much time on the fact there's no universal salvation? Because we talk about eternal security, we've got to know who we're talking about. And in John chapter 5, just verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which how many? All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Every dead person that's ever died will be raised. Verse 29. And will come forth those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life. And the only good deed is to trust in his son according to the word of God. Those who committed evil deeds to what? A resurrection of what? Judgment. You see, there's a difference. There is no universal salvation. If you are sitting in this auditorium today and think, well, this is Pastor Dan's opinion, Fellowship Bible Church's doctrine, I've heard this, but they can't be the only way to trust in Christ. I'm telling you, it is. And there is no universal salvation, very clearly, according to the word of God. What matters is God's revealed truth and not man's philosophy. It doesn't matter what man thinks, it matters what this book says. So there is no universal salvation to begin with. Go back to John chapter 10. And that is evident by the fact that some of them did not believe. The second aspect I'm just going <clears> to... <throat> Hit, hit upon for a second here under it is not for all is the fact you cannot escape the reality not just of one half of this folks but of both halves what is that in verse 26 and 27 it is very clear as well as 25 when you look at those three verses number one they did not believe that is dealing with human responsibility and you cannot escape it as much and as hard as people will try. The second thing is, you can neither escape the fact that it is because they are not part of the sheep fold. You are not of my sheep, verse 26. See, you don't believe why? Because you are not part of the sheep. That is divine sovereignty. You cannot have one 
without the other. You say, it absolutely has to be, Pastor Dan. You better look closer at the scriptures. You cannot eliminate one or the other. If you do, you are not doing justice to scripture. While it is impossible for the finite mind, in my opinion, that is the mind of man, to perfectly reconcile this, the mind of God, who is infinite, is absolutely happy with it. And I just want you to listen to these passages. I've read them to you before. But Acts chapter 2, you cannot get away from the human accountability and the sovereignty of God. In Acts chapter 2, I will read to you verse 23. Listen carefully. In verse 23, he says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that's sovereignty. Watch the responsibility. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And they will be held responsible. They all go together. Luke chapter 22, verse 22 says this. Listen to this one. Luke 22, 22 says this. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it had been determined. Listen. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The scriptures are abundant with those things. Number one, God determined that he would be betrayed. And it was Judas Iscariot. And while I didn't compare it to the Matthew passage, Matthew says it would have been better that he had never been born. You cannot escape the fact that Judas Iscariot will pay the responsibility for what he did and the human responsibility for not believing Christ as well as the, as the fact that God had a sovereign plan and nothing was out of his absolute will. That's another important aspect to the word of God in what's in this passage. So there is no universal salvation. It is because of unbelief that a person is not part of the family of God, and it also works sovereignly with God because no one will come unless God calls. So who in the world, then, is saved or born again? Bottom line, it's the one who believes. The one who believes what? That Jesus is the Christ. And no human being will believe that, number one, listen to this, no human being will believe that apart from the gospel being preached. God has chosen. There is no one that will ever stand in heaven that will be there because God chose me, but I never heard the gospel. It doesn't work that way. God uses both. The only ones that will be in heaven are the sheep. The only ones that will be in heaven are those who are saved. And it's not a matter of believing in facts about the good shepherd. It's belief from the heart. And so when we're talking about eternal security, not everyone has it. And it's not for everybody. And it would do us good to examine ourselves. Why? Because there's too many loose professions of faith today. Many, many who say they belong to Christ and there's absolutely no evidence. There's no fruit there's no life to back it up. And just words that are being spoken, there's people that have marched forth, made a profession, raised their hand, done this, done that, and because of their, their actions, they think they're on their way to heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it tells us that we should examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. That is a healthy thing. All of this leading to eternal security. It's good to examine ourselves. The whole book of 1 John, in my opinion, is written so that we might believe. But in doing that, 
he says over and over again, if you say, but you don't obey my commands, if you say, but you hate the brethren, if you say, but your actions are such, you're not a believer. That's what the book says. But he's written those things so he might believe. James in James chapter 2 says, faith without works is a dead faith. So there's a lot of people that profess faith, but there's no life to back it up. So we should examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Have we truly trusted in Christ? Have we believed on him from our heart? Or has it been verbiage? Is it just like the demons? The demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they're not willing to rest their eternal destiny in him. Many people today are saying, I've believed on Christ, but I want nothing to do with him. See you in heaven. And Christian, the Christian circle is changing tremendously today. There is absolutely very little commitment to the things of God today. Very little. And I'm not talking about just organized church, in case it's in your mind while you're sitting out there. There is very little commitment. When you get bought by Christ, you belong to him. And I know for a fact, you know, my life has changed. I left uh, accounting and so forth. We're not here to talk about my life. But I know this. There was no question in my mind. I didn't belong to me anymore. Why did I go to the events at Fellowship Bible Church? Why did I go to prayer meeting? This is true. It wasn't because anybody told me I had to go to prayer meeting. And why did I start reading my Bible? It wasn't because Pastor Stringer said, read your Bible. It wasn't. I had life. I wanted to know. And when you belong to Christ, so you need to do a reality check. Because if there's no life there, you won't see the breathing. You won't see the fruit. You won't see the desire for spiritual things. You're going to see the desire, my life belongs to me and nobody can tell me differently. That is the voice of an unbeliever. I don't care what you say. That's the truth. That's why we're to examine ourselves. We need to do a reality check. What about if I've trusted in Christ and yet I sin? Or I don't feel like I'm saved. Or I'm not sure it was really from the heart. That's an assurance situation. There are believers who do some terrible things. All you got to do is read 1 Corinthians. But the believer will always come back. Why? Because of the preservation of the saints and what we're going to talk about here. But I would say this to you. It is very healthy if you, in your life, examine yourself and say, you know, I'm really not sure that I've really trusted in Christ. Well, then settle it. Don't waste your time. Settle it right there in the pew. Go to God honestly and tell him that you're not sure you'd really trusted in him. There's too many on the other side of the coin, especially parents that try to convince their children they're saved because they're so sure they said this prayer or they did this or they did that. Let them know themselves that it's real. Let them see it, but let it get settled. So this is what brings us to how do I know then if I have eternal life. Well, if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you just saw it in the passage this morning, I'll refer to it again in John chapter 6 of your reading. He says, if anyone comes to me, I won't cast you out. How does that work? Because God's got to do the calling in the first place. And when he calls, he will not cast you out. So if you come to him, he won't cast you out. And if you believe on him, what is the result? You have eternal life. Look at what he says. He says, you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. And I just pointed out to you, those two things go hand in hand. That's why we could spend weeks on that. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Watch, 
I know them. And notice this. And they do what? They follow me. Sheep follow their leader. They don't go off and drift on vacation from their leader. They don't go off and go back to someplace else. They follow their leader. How do I follow Christ? You can't follow him if you're not in the word. You can't follow him if you don't know what he says. It is beyond my understanding how people can make a profession of faith and have no interest in reading the word of God. You say, well, the early disciples didn't have all of that. No, they had direct revelation that came through the apostles. But even though they didn't have their New Testament Bibles, do you know what the followers did? They went everywhere that Christ went. They slept where he slept. They heard what he said. They went and without, like he was without. Wherever he went, they went. They followed him. They followed him. And even Abraham in the Old Testament, you go back to the Old Testament, they didn't have all the New Testament. God said, go, they went. It wasn't, oh, well, let me bury my father. Or let me, let me take care of my affairs. You know what God's response to that was in the New Testament? I know you know what it was. Let the bed, dead bury the bed, uh, dead. You either follow me or go back and live with them. You don't ride the fence. If that's the world you want, go. You're not part of my sheep. You're not part of my sheep. So who, who can rest in, the, in, in having eternal security? It's the one who believes. Why? Now to verse 28. The first reason we know we're eternally secure, we already pointed out it's not for everybody, is number one, it rests in the promise of God. How do I know if I've trusted in Christ, I'm eternally secure? Verse 28. And I, Christ, give eternal life to them. God says, I give eternal life. To who? The sheep. Only the sheep get it. And the sheep get what type of life? Eternal life. If you really want to break down the term, literally, what does it mean? It literally, if you take the word and break it down, it means life of the ages. It's two words. I give them the life of the ages. What in the world is that? I give them the life to come. I give them resurrected life. I give him a life that is eternal. It continues through all of the ages. I don't know how else I can try to word it in English. That's basically what it means. Christ gives eternal life. In John 3:16, we quote it all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever has the issue believes on him. What do I have? Everlasting life. Go with me to John chapter 6 for a minute. Go back there. That was our responsive reading. John chapter 6. Watch. Eternal security is resting on the promise of God. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all, not some, all that he has given me, I lose how many? Nothing. When you come to Christ, when you're part of the sheep, and he knows the sheep from eternity past, but when he's called you and you've believed on him, you have eternal life. Listen, I've read some commentaries that they on John chapter 10, and they say it really doesn't mean that. I'm sorry, God meant what he said. He gives eternal life. What does that mean? Well, he explained it in chapter 6. 
I lose nothing. Verse 39. But raise it up the last day. Who's going to be raised up the last day? All who come to him. That's who. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who believes or beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up the last day. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you who believe, he who believes has what? Eternal life. He has eternal life. That is just what it means. Eternal. Why? God can't lie. How's that for simplicity? Listen to Titus chapter 1. If you want to mark it down for your notes, it's Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what God says. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. Yes, sovereignty. He calls. No question. There's got to be the effectual calling. A man won't come. Watch. And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now listen to verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. It rests in God's promise. Our God cannot lie. You and I go up and down with our emotions. You and I do fall into sin, even as believers, and we go up and down. Am I still saved? Am I not saved? It's not resting in you. It's not resting in me. The reason we have eternal life is because we kind of believe on Christ. God's called us to himself, and now I have eternal life because God says it is eternal. The next time a doubt comes into your mind as a true believer, after you've examined yourself, and you say, yes, I know I've trusted in Christ, you have eternal life. God says so. Not only that, go back to John chapter 10. He says, they have eternal life and they will what? Never, help me, perish. Maybe it's not the best literal translation, but it basically means they will never, ever perish. Got it? We need that as human beings. God, is it really eternal? Never perish. What do you mean never? Never, never, ever. Is he sure? I lose nothing. Maybe, I, maybe I'm one of the ones he will lose. All who come to me are saved and in Christ and will not lose it. They will never be destroyed. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this that these things I have written unto you that you may know. God wants us to have the assurance. Why? Because he is a sure thing. And I mean that not in, an under, in a derogatory way. I mean that sincerely. Christ says you can depend on it. I said it. And I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. So we're eternally secure. If you've examined yourself and you say, it was a genuine profession of faith, I've come to Christ, but I've been up and down in my walk and so forth, it isn't got to do with your walk. If you've genuinely come to Christ and believe, you will have a life that will want to follow the shepherd. But he goes on. This is why I think it's the most powerful, in my opinion, one of the strongest on eternal security. He not only says he will never perish, watch what he says next. The second part of that outline there, 
It rests, eternal security rests in what? The hand of Jesus Christ. You cannot be taken out of his hand. Right? That's right. How do we know that? That's what he says. No one. Well, maybe I can do it. No. Maybe government leaders can do it. No. Maybe your spouse could do it. No. Maybe your parents, maybe your children. No. He means what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see why it goes back to that shepherd's passage? The good shepherd? They were coming in to snatch away the sheep. He says, listen, no one can do it. Why? People say you're in good hands with all state. That might be good for business. But let me say this. You're in better hands with God. And when you're in God's hand, no one can take you out of it. Not even yourself. If you've come to believe in Christ and it's a genuine profession of faith, you're in there. And it's not a club. It's a family. It's a family of God who Christ is the head. It's his church and you're part of the body of Christ and he will never let you go. People will let you down. The stock market will let you down. Your health will let you down. Your home will let you down. Countries will let you down. All that we started with the message today. There is no security in any of that. You can have all the gold in the world. You can be the richest person, the richest billionaire of the billionaires on the earth. None of that is eternally secure. The only thing that's eternally secure is a person who is in Christ Jesus. Period. And you're eternally secure because he is the one that's got you. He's the one that's got you. I didn't go back to it. I'll give you the references. He seals us when we come and belong to him. For your reference, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, in other words. He is the investment in that Christ has put him in us until he comes back for the purchased possession. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, I believe it is, says this, that if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The true evidence that you belong to him is you have the Holy Spirit. Because when you have come to profess faith in Christ, when he has called you, remember, we've seen that, John chapter 6. No one will come unless the Father calls. But when the Father calls and draws, when you're coming and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're his forever. No one can take that away. Why do you think you've got Romans chapter 8 at the end of that passage? I won't turn there. You know it. How much will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing will separate you from that. Neither life nor death, nor height, nor principalities, nor powers. Nothing can separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus. Why? Not even ourselves. You see, so when we're up and down with our emotions, when we're up and down and we don't feel like we're saved, when we just blew it, it's because we have genuine repentance, not like the world that gets caught, but genuine repentance and we say, God, I'm sorry I did this, and we come back. It's because of the genuine repentance that we learned about when we studied the book of Corinthians, that it shows that we're a child of God. It's because God's chastening us as a child and we see him chastening us in our life and rebuking us, that we know we belong to him and that he's a loving father. If you're a Christian and you a professing Christian and you never have chastening in your life, Christ already says what that is. You don't belong to him. No child is without chastening. No child. Because he loves us, you see. No one can snatch us. No one can steal us 
I'm trying to think of different words as you look at that term there. No one can steal you. No one can take you away. Why? There's no one more powerful. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. You're in the best hands that you could be when you're in the hands of the Son. And in case we didn't get the picture, he says, I'll give you a third reason you're eternally secure. Not only because I said it. Secondly, not only because I keep you, but the next one is verse 29. My Father who has given them to me, there again is the working of the Father and the Son, they work together in harmony, is greater than all. Okay? And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You got it? You're eternally secure, Jesus Christ says, because I said so. You're eternally secure because I have you. You're eternally secure because the Father has you. And there isn't anyone that's more powerful than God the Father or God the Son. And there isn't anyone that can remove, remove you. What a tremendous thought. We have eternal security. When you have come to Christ, and I know I'm not a naive person standing here in the pulpit. I know there's passages that people go to and say, well, what about this passage? What about that passage? Always take it in light of the simplicity of the clearest teaching of Scripture. And everywhere in Scripture it teaches, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. I will raise them all up the last day, all believers, as far as to him. And you look at all of those lights. The other one's got to fit in there somewhere. You see? You don't go to some obscure doctrine. You are eternally secure. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're eternally secure. If you don't know him, you're not secure at all. And you know it in your heart. You need to come to Christ. Before I deal with the last verse for just a second, I just want you to see one other passage today that I want you to turn to. Would you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? I just want believers to go out of here encouraged. Isn't it nice to get encouraged once in a while? Boy, if you if you didn't hear everything that I said and you didn't agree with a lot of what I said or whatever, wherever you are, just go out of here with these verses today. If you're a believer, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. I don't even know if I told you that. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, there it is, God had to do the work. Absolutely. God caused us to be born again to a living hope. Look at that, guys. When I say guys, it's generic. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the evidence. Now look at this. Isn't it great? Great. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance. What is it like? Imperishable. Undefiled. It will not fade away. Where is it? Reserved. Where? In heaven. For who? You who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Who are protected, watch, by the power of who? God. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that great? We have an inheritance that's Never going to fade away. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. And we're kept by the power 
of God. It's just another way of saying the same thing he said in John chapter 10. You have eternal life. No one will take you out of my hand. No one will take you out of the Father's hand. And you are eternally secure. You will never, never, ever, ever perish. Praise God. And when he says, I and the Father are one, let me just say this, and there, there literally could be a lot of messages given on that one verse. We already know that they are separate persons from John chapter 1. He in no way is discounting that. There is a, uh, if you want to get technical about it, I believe the neuters used here, not the uh, masculine. So then he's not saying that they're one and the same person. They're one in unity. That's everywhere taught in Scripture. But the whole context tells you what he means by verse 30. Verse 30 means they're one in what he just pointed out in verses 28 and 29. They're together in this. What? As the good shepherd, his sheep belong to him. No one will take them away. No one will rob, snatch, or anything, or kill the sheep. I am in this. My father's in this. And we're one in everything that we do together. I believe that's the context in everything that we do. And he summarizes it by saying that in verse 30 because he just pointed out in verse 28 and 29 that no one can take us out of his hand. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. We're together in this. We're one. You're not going to be able to win over what he does. So where are you today? Have you trusted in Christ? If you have, you have a God that cares, a God that loves, a God that protects, and you will never lose your salvation. Never. Not if you genuinely trusted in him. What if there's doubt? What if you say, I'm just not sure I've ever come to him? Well, then why not settle it there in your pew? Didn't he just say in John chapter 6 that anyone that comes to him, he will in no wise cast out? Yeah, he did. He said, but I'm not sure that God's calling me. What do you think he's doing in your life right now if you're thinking that way? He's calling you. He's going to have the effectual calling, yes. But he does it through the word of God. Come to Christ. Trust in him now. It's the only security that anyone can have that's truly eternal security. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the words of our good shepherd. What a comfort I know it is to my heart. I know my emotions go all over the place. When I fail, I get down on myself and Sometimes we wonder whether we really do belong to you. And then, Father, you give us so much reassurance. But I thank you and praise you that every single believer, every true sheep who's come to Christ is eternally secure. Eternally secure because of your word, because of your promise, because of your character. Also because you and the Father hold us, protect us and care for us, and no one can snatch us away. No, not even ourselves. We thank you for that. We thank you that we have an inheritance that's undefiled, that will never fade away, that it's reserved in heaven for us, and we have the joy of experiencing eternal life now. What a great, good shepherd we have. Father, help us to follow you on a regular basis. We know that your scripture makes it very clear that your sheep are to bear fruit, and we will bear fruit, but you want us to bear much fruit. I pray that we'd do that for the glory of God. And Father, if there be any here this morning who thought that 
it was universal salvation that anyone could be to heaven. Help them to see that no religion, no good works of their own, no efforts of their own can bring them into a right relationship with God. But only the work of your son satisfied you by sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to bear the penalty of sin, to be resurrected from the grave. Help them to see that he is the only way of salvation. He is the only true good shepherd. And as you're calling, help them to repent of their sin and come to Christ, to believe on him. But Father, even as we've only seen, uh, we've seen today, the, the only issue is belief, to truly believe in our heart on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall be saved. Help them to come to that place right now, right here, right in this room. We pray these things and ask your guidance in the remainder of the day, and we pray it in Jesus' name.